0: This is episode 193 of That Shakespeare Life. Bring our podcast into your classroom with access to our video streaming library, printable worksheets, lesson plans, and activities that work like science labs for Shakespeare history. Unlock all these benefits when you become a member here at That Shakespeare Life, where you can cook, play, and create your way through the life of William Shakespeare. Sign up today at castycash.com/slash member and stay tuned after the episode for even more details. Hi, I'm Vaughn Scribner, Associate Professor of History and recent author of the book, People: A Human History with Reaction Books. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend, Cassidy Cash.
1: Some of the, the companies like the grocers or the merchant tailors would often include a more or various kinds of Indian characters. And they'd often be depicted as riding animals like leopards, like camels and ostriches as well.
2: And now, here's Cassidy. When London established a new mayor every
0: October, there was a pageant put on to celebrate the appointment and introduce the new mayor to the city. It was known as the Lord Mayor's Show. This event was an extravagant affair featuring a huge parade that followed an established route throughout the city. In one of the earliest accounts we have of the Lord Mayor's Show from 1585, records indicate that part of the parade that year was a pageant known as the King of Moors pageant. This pageant is described by our guest this week, Maria Schmiegel, as a Moor pageant that was performed by an actor in blackface and other pageant devices and dark-skinned personages variously described as Moors or Black Indians along with other terms. Maria writes that this pageant and this presentation of Black Moors would come again in close to 10 other mayoral inaugurations across the the early to mid 17th century, including three within Shakespeare's lifetime and one in 1616, the very last year of Shakespeare's life, where eyewitness accounts are available to describe what they saw at this particular Lord Mayor's show. Maria Schmiegel joins us today to explain the King of Moor's pageant from 1616, including what we know about the actors, blackface, makeup, and whether there was a distinction culturally between African, Indian, and Arabic, or if Moor was a more general term. Since the images of the King of Moor's pageant also include drawings of a giant leopard, Maria will share with us the purpose and place of that specific animal in the pageant as well. Maria Schmiegel is an editor on the Oxford University Press Complete Works of John Morrison Edition. She will soon begin a research fellowship at the National University of Ireland, Galway, with a project on non-European geographies and early modern drama. She's a project member and regular blog contributor at Medieval and Early Modern Orients, which is an international research network that examines early English interactions with the Safavid, Mughal, and Ottoman empires. Find links to Maria's work along with her articles in Medieval and Early Modern Orients in the show notes for today's episode.
1: Hello, Maria. Welcome to the show. Hi, Cassidy. Thanks for having me.
0: Was it standard for the Lord Mayor's show to feature celebrations of other characters or other countries in this pageant?
1: Yeah, well, we certainly find lots of of emblematic pageant devices and characters that represent People and properties, mostly commodities from different countries like India, Africa, and even the Americas as well in the period. So I'm not sure if it's a celebration of the countries themselves as much as it is a celebration of English trade with those countries. Um, Because obviously in the early 17th century, England was making more and more overseas trade connections, especially in places like India. And so we find lots of exotic animals and people representing um, those kind of aspirations. And obviously not all of the liveries companies were um, invested in foreign trade in that way, but it's very common to find, you know, the odd representation of an Indian character or a moor in these sorts of pageants. And some of them actually recurred year in, year out, you would find very similar tropes being used and very similar sorts of action being staged in the Lord Mayor's shows.
0: What part of the world is Shakespeare referring to when he uses the term more? Traditionally, we assume Othello is African because he's described as black-skinned, but could more also be talking about Spain, Turkey, and the Ottoman Empire? Is it possible Othello is not African, but could have been written to be Turkish or Spanish or some other non-white skin tone? Hmm.
1: That's a tricky question because the word more is really difficult to pin down in a lot of instances. It's difficult to pin down to an exact geographical location in writing in the period in many cases. And the reason for that is because, you know, issues of ethnicity, of religion, of geography, of migration complicate the meaning of that word. And so, in fact, we get these different early modern English and early modern European writers applying different, terms like, you know, we have more as the kind of catch-all term, but we also have more specific instances like a blacker moor, a tawny moor, or a white moor, which sometimes differentiate between black Africans and Arab inhabitants of the northern African coast, much of which was under Ottoman rule at the time. And so the term Turk also creeps in there as well and complicates matters even further. And there's also an inconsistency um, in how the term more is used. So I think it's quite an ambiguous term in the period, and it can certainly describe someone from Africa as easily as it can describe someone from the Middle East or the Mediterranean. But to to answer your question about Othello, I don't think there's any reason, based on the play, to think that Shakespeare imagined him to be Turkish or to be a Turkish or a Spanish Moor. Even though it's very true that both the Ottoman Empire and Spain at this period had very diverse populations, but the question is also interesting too because, you know, the Othello is the Moor of Venice, so there's that kind of layer of identity too. That identity is not stable; it's something that changes with migration, as well.
0: Well, and certainly we can give Shakespeare credit for probably intentionally giving us ambiguity, as he does so many <laughs> times throughout his plays. Mm-hmm. Maria writes that the King of Moors was something like a sketch to use modern theater language in that this presentation followed a certain pattern and included certain elements that were repeatable in several Lord Mayor shows. Maria calls attention to one presentation of the King of Moors that happened in 1616, which a contemporary account describes as, quote, then cometh the King of Moors gallantly mounted on a golden leopard, he hurling gold and silver every way about him, end quote. Maria, why was the King of Moors depicted as riding a golden leopard of all animals. Was the leopard specifically associated with the King of Moors? So
1: there's definitely a kind of general link in these shows between the uses of exotic animals like leopards and these kind of foreign personages like the Moors in the Lord Mayor's shows. Some of the the companies like the grocers or the merchant tailors would often include a Moor or various kinds of Indian characters, and they'd often be depicted as riding animals like leopards, like camels and ostriches as well. But in this particular case, in the 1616 show that we're talking about, the leopard that's present in the pageant is actually a reference to the leopard heads that featured on the coats of arms of the goldsmith's company. So it's completely in keeping in that sense with the the emblematic nature of the Lord Mayor's show pageants. They played around with that kind of heraldic and visual iconography in that way. So it's not in this instance specifically linked to moors. It's more about linking it to the goldsmiths. And I'd also add that when you have these kinds of pageant devices used, you know, the the creation of the pageant device or the property, it costs money. And so the, the livery company has to cover those costs and often to kind of get their money's worth, they would keep the pageant device. And so in this case, the leopard was actually taken back to the company hall and it was kept as a kind of decorative item. And we also have examples, too, of other companies reusing those properties. So after they've invested the money into creating something like a camel or a leopard or an ostrich or you know a whale or whatever the, the property in question is, it crops up again and again in different shows. So that's also a kind of continuation of particular tropes um, that we find in the period.
0: The description from 1616 goes on to describe that the presentation was supported by the Guild of Goldsmiths. And you referred to this in their intentionality behind the symbolism here, but that the King of Moors would go through and throw coins or metal counters along the pageant route as he was riding through London. Maria, this sounds a lot like a sponsored parade float that we might see today where participants go overboard to wear the colors of the sponsoring company and give out samples to the audience as a kind of marketing ploy. Is this a similar marketing gimmick for the goldsmiths of 1616? Well, I think, yes. Yeah, it's, it's
1: the funny thing about the Lord Mayor's show is that it's this great opportunity for the livery company in question to show off to the city at large. So these shows were very public. They were free to attend and they drew a huge crowd. So, you know, can you imagine like 20,000 people watching these shows, Um, and taking in all the different messages that the delivery company wants to get across. And they do that by using these different pageant devices, which I guess are a lot like floats in that sense. The company spent lots of money on making sure that they were an adequate reflection of the, the splendor and the generosity of their institution that they wanted to reflect and impress upon the citizens of London, and so the pageant devices used in the shows were a great way of doing this. They're a visually striking platform from which the company could indeed share these gifts with the spectators. So, very often, the kind of freebies that were given out during the, the, the shows to the crowd would be linked kind of thematically to the company in question. So, in the case of the 1616 show, that show was actually put on by the fishmongers. And within that show, we have this kind of flattering homage to the, the goldsmiths company so they staged the king of Moors pageant and it's fitting for the king of Moors, as a kind of homage to the goldsmiths to be handing out objects that look like coins obviously they weren't real gold or silver they were kind of metal imitations but it's still a kind of visual representation of of the trade, of the materials of the trade. But elsewhere in the show, which was stayed by, staged by the fishmongers, they had uh, different pageants like a model of a fishing vessel, very ornately carved, obviously to celebrate the labour of the fishmongers. And apparently the actors who were used in that vessel, as it kind of went through the crowd, they were handing out free fish to the audience, which I don't think is something that we'd expect from a modern-day
0: um, parade float, I hope. I, would, I wouldn't think so, but I imagine it makes sense, like handing out cookies or something today. As this pageant was designed to introduce the new Lord Mayor, what's the connection to the Lord Mayor appointed in 1616? He was a man named John Lehman, and the presentation of gold exploration and the bringing back of treasures from foreign lands, is this all part of his platform, I guess, for his new administration?
1: Mm-hmm. So John Lemon, um, he was a member of the Fishmongers Company, but he was actually a merchant whose personal trade interests for many years rested in domestic trade, mostly of cheese and dairy products. So he was all about domestic trade, but he did own joint stock in the East India Company, which was established in 1600. So you know he doesn't speak for the Fishmongers in that sense, but you know he himself did benefit from. Uh, trade with the East Indies because he got dividends from his joint stock and I think that the King of Moors pageant on this particular occasion is an emphasis on you know just general sort of golden riches from abroad it's not directly intended to honour John Lemon himself as the inaugural mayor it's rather that kind of gesture towards the goldsmiths company with whom the fishmongers historically had links but the other pageants in the show definitely designed to celebrate the fishmongers in general but there was also a kind of emphasis on the figure of john lemon as someone who's inheriting all of these different kind of duties and roles that he needs to fulfill with honor and with charity and with good governance so there was one specific device that was made for john lemon in this pageant and it was a model of a lemon tree to pun on his surname. And that was quite a common conceit in the Lord Mayor's shows, you know, punning on whoever the Lord Mayor that year was. Um, and so the lemon tree was also you know, presented to the mayor as a pageant that then made its way across the procession, which too. So it's, it's a whole mix of different celebrations of John Lemon, of the fishmongers, of the brethren within um, the livery companies too.
0: Maria describes the pageant as, quote, the Moor figures in this pageant were undoubtedly performed in blackface, either by means of cosmetic tenting of the skin or through the use of cloth masks, stockings and gloves, end quote. Maria, why do we think the Moors in the performance are in blackface? So there's a number of
1: reasons to suggest that blackface was used across the various King of Moors pageants um, in the 16th and 17th centuries. So as I mentioned, this is something that crops up again and again in the period. And so some of the printed accounts of the of the shows that were published contain speeches that the King of the, Moor, King of the Moors would kind of deliver to the audience. And some of these speeches direct, directly reference his skin colour. So one example would be um, from a different show from 1613, where we again have a King of the Moors and his wife, and they arrive in London and you know, he gives the speech to the citizens and In the speech, he he asks the audience whether they've ever seen a king so black before, and he also references the darkness that dwells upon his face. And so those kinds of references in those printed accounts, I don't think they would make much sense if, you know, he he wasn't wearing uh, blackface, whether it's through cosmetic tinting or sartorial blackface, uh, the kind that Ian Smith describes in a chapter. But... I think there's also evidence in eyewitness accounts. So there are a couple of documents that were drawn by eyewitnesses, the quick sort of sketches of the action um, as they saw it on a Lord Mer- Mer's Day. And some of them depict figures on the devices. Then you have one figure who's coloured in. And so it, it kind of signals that what the eyewitness saw was probably somebody wearing makeup to represent a king of the Moors or an Indian character in these shows and obviously we know that you know blackface and brownface were frequently employed in the commercial theaters too so it's really not a surprise that civic performance of this kind is also employing similar tactics for visually representing racial difference i think
0: i think i would like to ask you to make a distinction here for us because when we say blackface there's an automatic bristling that happens in context of that term because of our modern day understanding of blackface and especially here in uh, North America in like a post-Civil War era, we, we kind of bristle at that term. And I would like you to contextualize it for us in context of Shakespeare's lifetime. When we're seeing representations of actors that have been painted black to represent darker skinned people was that designed to be insulting and demeaning at the time or was it just a part of theater
1: i think that in this context with these sorts of pageants and the representations that we've been discussing i don't think they were designed to be insulting in that sense but i don't think that any representation of racial difference in this context can really be neutral either so it's not the same as what comes in later centuries with the use of the blackface, and it's something that Ayana Thompson um, discusses in a recent book on blackface that you know might be really useful for for audio for, yeah for listeners of this show to read more about and to kind of think about the context of the historical moment that we're talking about and what comes later and how it all sort of fits in. Um, but I would say that. Yeah, the representations of racial difference, they're not neutral. And even in this kind of representation that we find here, it's, you know, it's complementary in some senses, isn't it? The King of Moors, he's not depicted as a villain. He's not depicted negatively. He is a benevolent, regal figure who willingly shares his country's wealth with these English crowds. It's very different from the stock villain types that we find on um, on the professional stage. So, for example, like Aaron the Moor. He is a stock villain type, but I'd say that this representation is directly informed by the economic ambitions of white English institutions and individuals who create this kind of emblematic fantasy in the King of Moors pageants that we see in civic pageantry at this time, where the wealth of a whole continent is translated into the figure of the Moorish king. And so the figure the figuration um, is complementary to English economic ambition more than anything else, I think. And that's a bit problematic because it stems from the kind of imperialist aspirations that are on the rise in the period. So, yeah, I think it's
0: so different, different. but no less complicated. Yeah.
1: And I think there's been so much scholarship on all of these different issues that, you know, maybe listeners would be interested in, in reading about further.
0: I absolutely think we'd be interested in reading more. Now you mentioned a couple of resources, but what are some of your resources you can recommend for us to check out?
1: Yeah, so there's a there's a handful of things that I'd like to mention. So on civic pageantry, I think the best book that anyone can possibly read would be Tracy Hill's book on pageantry and power, a cultural history of the early modern Lord Mayor's show, which is fantastic. It gives an amazing account of the history of the different shows, of all the different people who are involved. And Tracy bases that book on many years of outstanding archival research. So that would be the best place to learn about Lord Mayor's shows. I'd also recommend Amrita Sen and Caitlin fin- Edited Collection on Civic Performance, Pageantry and Entertainments, which also contains lots of great essays on different aspects of civic drama. There's also a great chapter in Anthony Bartholomew's book on blackface maligned race that deals specifically with the representation of black uh, people in these kinds of pageants. And we kind of mentioned the difficulties around the term more earlier um, in our conversation, and I'd like to recommend anyone who's interested in the complexity of these terms to consult a resource called Tide Keywords. It's available as both a printed book and as an open access online resource prepared by the Travel, Transculturality and Identity in England project. And it's a collection of mini essays that kind of unravel the complexity of terms like like more Indian and Turk in the period. So it's really useful.
0: Um, Those are excellent. um, We will follow up with Maria to get links to these books and place them in the show notes for today's episode, particularly the open access book there that you can mm -hmm. check out and make sure to read that. Thank you, Maria, for these recommendations. We'll make sure to include those in the show notes for today. Now we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's, what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those.
1: I was having a think about this and I don't know what, if I'm going to be stuck on a desert island, like I'm going to have a lot of time on my hands. Right. So I was thinking, like, do I take something that I just kind of enjoy reading that I want to reread or would I want to take something new? And then I thought, if I have all that time on my hands, would I benefit from maybe sitting down and reading a good old detailed encyclopedia to learn lots and lots of new stuff?
0: We well, would certainly able- have the space to do that. Yes. Yeah. But could it be like a multi-volume encyclopedia?
1: Does that still count as one book? or is Absolutely. That
0: I think so. Yes. <laughs> it's your deserted island. So we'll let you, we'll let you yeah. take a multi-volume place of cycle. learning. Yeah. <laughs> You'll be well set up for sure. So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about?
1: Well, right now I'm working on a few textual editing projects, like the old spelling component of the complete works of John Marston for OEP, And I'm also trying to finish up um, work on a Malone Society edition of a manuscript play that I've been editing. But in a few months, I'll be starting a new research fellowship where I'll be working on a project that focuses on non-European geography and English drama, which I'm really excited about because it means I get to read lots of new plays, think about lots of new text, and I'll of course be sharing my progress on my new research through my regular blogs on the Medieval and Early Modern Orients website.
0: Well, we definitely look forward to seeing the work that you are putting together. Maria Schneegold, thank you so much for being here this week and taking us through the history of the King of Moors passion that happened at the very last year of Shakespeare's life. This has been a fun conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you, Cassidy. A huge part of the King of Moors pageant, as we discussed today, were the visual aspects, the elaborate nature of what you were seeing as the parade went by. To help give you some of those images from the King of Moors pageant, we've done some research into the background and found some pictures of the King of Moors, the golden leopard, and information on the emblem of the goldsmiths, and we've packed them all into the show notes for today's episode. You can find resources that Maria talks about today, as well as bonus Shakespeare history and a place to leave a question or a comment for us here at That Shakespeare Life, all packed into the show notes for today. You can find all of these things at com slash episode 193. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP193. If you enjoyed our show this week, be sure to leave us a comment and rating on your favorite podcast platform, and share the show today with someone you think might enjoy learning something new about the Bard. We've added new content to our members area this week, including a private virtual tour of Goodrich Castle. Explore all the exclusive members-only Shakespeare courses, resources, and bonus history inside the members area for that Shakespeare life. Find all these things at CassidyCash.com/member. That's cassidycashcom M-E-M. M-B-E-R. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next week.
2: Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life.